Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Shmuley, it's really it's a pleasure uh, to be here at the Valley Beit Midrash. I've uh, the, the the admiration is is mutual, and um, you have uh, you have a a, 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 a serious um, a, a, a rabbinic activism superhero here in, in your in your in your town, in your community, and um, and it's really uh, it's really wonderful to participate and be able to contribute to, to your work, to your program. Um, so what I want to present about tonight has, has a lot of different facets, and it's impossible to encompass them all in one talk, okay? Because we could speak about politics, we could speak about halacha, we could speak about the social dynamic, um, and we could actually give a whole talk on, the, on, on simply the legal um, side of, of, of this dynamic. What I'm going to do is give, a, is give an introduction. Because this is a Beit Midrash program, uh, we're going to do some source work on the source sheets that you have. Um, and, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap that in uh, you know, an overall introduction. Of the, just tell the story simply of this, uh, of this um, organization and the work that we're doing. How did it come about? Um, what's it all about? Um, where is it going? And, and uh, I'm going to try and do all that in about half the time we have so that, so that we can spend the second half simply going where you're most interested in going. Okay? Because like I said, there's many different facets and, 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 and elements to, uh, to this program. So uh, all of this starts really when you when you walk into a restaurant and if you keep kosher and you walk into a restaurant in Israel the typical question that you start with is kasherpo is it is it kosher here and and very often what you hear is the answer yes it's kosher but then the question becomes what sort of certification does um does the the, the kashrut have I, I i'm a rabbi and nachlaot nachlaot is um I don't, I don't know what the equivalent would be in Phoenix. What's the equivalent of like Hit Ashbury in San Francisco or, <laughs> or Greenwich Village in New York? Um, I don't think we have you don't have it. <laughs> okay. We said that Israel. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Nachlaot is where you know the vegans live, where the where the artists live. Um, so um, I live in Nachlaot. Um, and down the block from me was a, was, a, was a coffee shop called the Salon B'Shabazi. Um, it was a very happening coffee shop. It was a hip place. Um, they, they, were, they used to invite all the activists in the, in, in the neighborhood to spend time there. You didn't, you know, whether you buy coffee or not, come, come and sit by us. And I walked in and I, I said, is it kosher? Okay, and I, I had a conversation with Chaya Gilboa, who's sitting here, and Eliasaf, who's on the couch in the middle. Um, and, um, and the answer was, Yes, it's kosher, but we don't have any certification because we will not work with the chief rabbinate. We refuse to work with the Israeli chief rabbinate. Now, 
it's important to know that um, in Israel today, the Israeli chief rabbinate have a monopoly on, uh, on, uh, on kosher services. The law to prevent fraud in kashrut, which is a law from 1983, basically says the following. In order to use the word kosher in Israel, you have to be certified by the Israeli chief rabbinate, okay? In order to use the, the word kosher in print. So let's say you have a restaurant or a coffee shop, and, you, and the food is completely kosher. You're not allowed to communicate that to your customer without a certificate from the chief rabbinate of Israel. And um, You would think it challenges the First Amendment. Uh, well, being as in Israel, there is no constitution. <laughs> so, but, um, but what's, what, what, ultimately what's happened as a result of this monopoly is you can imagine if you take a government agency, which at the most could theoretically be a regulatory agency, and you give them a financial monopoly on the service, in other words, really, the, the role of government is to, is to regulate and investigate um, agencies. But over here, basically, what, what, what the chief rabbinate have are mon is, a, is a monopoly on kosher supervision and, and also all of the investigative power, all the enforcement power to investigate and enforce any competition, anyone who tries to compete. And of course, nobody is investigating them. So um, for years, I was speaking about the corruption of the, the corruption in kashrut, in kosher food. I'm in the chief rabbinate in Israel, and I always felt a little uncomfortable speaking about it because here I am as an activist who, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a conflict of interest there for me to be tooting my own horn. So, so thank God the state, the state comptroller um, five months ago published an in-depth um, expose on kosher food in Israel, and specifically, by the way, the kosher, the kosher system of the chief rabbinate of the um, religious council in Jerusalem, okay? and listed about 20 different levels of corruption from bribery and cronyism, false reporting. They had, they, 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 on the timesheets of one of the inspectors, he was reporting 26 hours of work a day, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but we know the stories also from business owners. We know the stories of, of inspectors who, 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 who eventually sometimes only come once a month to collect their paycheck. We have one restaurant who timed the inspector, the mashgiach, timed the amount of time that he was in, in, in the restaurant, and then calculated how much he was paying him, and, and, and calculated he was paying 250 shekels an hour. Okay, what's 250 shekels? Like, like, uh, like uh, $75 an hour. Uh, sorry, no, a minute. Not an hour, a minute, a minute, a minute. Um, so, to stories of mashkichim who would take food without, you know, indiscriminately take food from the restaurant, take food home for their families. Um, you know, basically a, a very, very unpleasant situation. So a lot of restaurants had jumped ship from the chief rabbinate as a result of that. We also had some, we also had restaurants that didn't want to work with the chief rabbinate simply in objection to the monopoly that the chief rabbinate have on other issues as well. Okay? Um, maybe let's just for a moment together, what other issues do the chief rabbinate have? What other controversial yeah. issues? Okay, so there's a, there's a monopoly on marriage, good. Conversion is a, is, a, is a huge one, which, by the way, burial, burial yeah, yeah. I actually heard that there were uh, rabbis from the chief rabbinate that would go to, like they went to a kibbutz and said, we won't give you a kosher certification because you have conservative kids here praying together in the synagogue together and we would remove your Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm, I, I haven't heard that particular case, but there have been similar cases of um, 
of uh, hotel, hotel synagogues where the, where, the, where the Torah scroll was being used by non-Orthodox non communities and the, they threatened to take away the kashrut or hotels which for instance had a Christmas tree, Christmas time um, in their life. Um, hello, Christmas time in Jerusalem, the hotels are full of Christians. <laughs> and, and were threatened to have, their, to have their, their certification taken away. There was a famous case of a belly dancer 15 years ago and, uh, um, and, and a cafe and a, and, and a, and a restaurant uh, run by a Messianic Jew um, in, 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 in a city. Um, so all these cases where, where, where the threat of revoking kashrut over issues which don't relate directly to the food um, are, are, were very common. And divorce is a big one. Divorce is a big one, especially because of the issues of, 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 of get refusal. So we have all these restaurants, and they don't want to work with the chief rabbinate. Understandably so. Um, but they say, so, so the restaurant owner, whose name was Eliasaf, by the way, both Chaya, who was the manager of the restaurant, and Eliasaf, who's sitting there in the middle, grew up in Orthodox homes. And neither of them uh, keep kosher, or kept kosher at the, keep kosher today or at the time of this conversation, which is 2013. So they said, we know what it takes to, keep to, 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 to be kosher. We want our families to be able to eat in our restaurant. It's kosher. Okay, now we do a lot of things based on our... Our... Um, uh, Kishkas, thanks. Um, you know, I bought a used car. I didn't get it checked out because the guy I was talking to, I just felt, I felt like I could trust him. And I, t and I took a chance. Um, but when it comes to kosher food, um, it's a question whether, whether the, the, the testimony of the person who works in the restaurant is reliable. And I spent a little bit of time maybe just looking at the, uh, at the source material. Okay? I, so we're going to start, we're going we're 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 to move to the source sheets now. We're going to start with the first source, which is a Mishnah in Demai. Um, somebody maybe want to read that, that Mishnah for us? Volunteer? Regarding the tithing of crops, must tithe that which he eats, that which he sells, and that which he buys, and must not be a guest in the house of an Ampaaretz, one who does not take care to tithe his produce. Rabbi Yehuda says that even one who does not does make himself a guest in the house of an Ampaaretz can be trusted. They said to him, He isn't trustworthy for himself. How can he be trustworthy for others? Okay, so over here we have a Mishnaic text which talks about can I trust someone that they have tithed their produce? Can I eat produce from someone which may not have had masrot, trumot and masrot, the various required tithes that have to be taken off and give, given to the priests or to the, or to the temple or to the poor? Okay, haven't had these gifts taken off. The food has a status, therefore, of demai. The word demai comes, by the way, from the Hebrew word, from the Aramaic word mai, which comes from the Hebrew word ma. In other words, I don't know if this is permitted or not. In contrast with tevel, food which is completely prohibited, okay? So if, we're if we were now to take this and move it into the realm of kashrut, I might have bacon, which I know, which is the equivalent of tevel. I know it's prohibited. And, and, but now I have something which I have a question about it, okay? I have a question about it. What's its status? Because all of these concepts, we didn't have an official list in Jerusalem. 
or some central location that somebody took a tithe. Mm -hmm. Somebody put aside payah. Somebody did leket. We didn't have official lists. Right. That's right. That's right. So we're talking about a simple, simple social dynamic. That's correct. Okay. Similar, for instance, if you know, I, if today I was in the supermarket. Um, two blocks down from, from, from my hotel, there was a health food supermarket, and there was a fellow walking around with a kippah. And I said to him, you know, do, you know can you help me figure out what's kosher or not? Um, and, and this is a question. You know, can somebody, I see somebody, can he be trusted? Um, over here, this Mishnah and Demai, if you look at Maimonides' understanding of the Mishnah, which is the next source, he says the following, what this means is that if a person who wants to be trustworthy regarding tithes, so we can rely on him when he says that something has or has not been tithed, and we will not consider his own produce to be demai, of unknown status which requires to be tithed from doubt. Now here's, listen to carefully to the bold words. He himself must follow these actions until he is known to do them, and then he will be trustworthy. Okay? So, basically, the implication is, is that what, what's, the, what's the default? Is the default trust or is the default suspicion? suspicion? The default is suspicion. In other words, you are suspected until, you, until, proven, until proven that you care. Yes. Um, so what did they do for, the for 12 centuries before the Rambam showed up? Um, that's a good question. I mean, you could ask that about any about any halachic category. Uh, I mean, again, you see the Mishnah, or the Rambam is explaining, expounding on the Mishnah. Okay, so so the the, the the core source is the Mishnah, but not everybody understands the Mishnah the same way the Rambam does. Um, let's skip. We're going to skip the next one in Bechorot because it's a little more it's a little more involved, and we and, and we don't have a lot of time. But do look over here at the next Rambam. Okay, it's the fourth source on the page. At the time when the land of Israel was entirely Jewish, one could buy wine from every person and have no suspicion. Whereas outside of Israel, one could only buy wine from someone held to be kosher. But in our day, no matter where one is, one may only buy wine from a person held to be kosher, and the same is true of meat, cheese, and fish, which does not have an identifying sign, as we have, sa as we have said. Now notice, if, if, you skip to the, if you go to the next source, but what, what does it mean held to be kosher? When the Rambam says someone is held to be kosher, what's required to be held to be kosher, to be, to be considered held to be kosher? If you look at, um, at, at the Arucha Shulchan, okay, which is the second to the last source over here, the Arucha Shulchan is a much later source. We're talking here about a, uh, uh, a um, uh, why well, I don't have the year of the, year of the Arucha Shulchan, but we're talking about um, you know, about a hundred years ago, uh, an Av Beitin, uh, the head of a Beitin who, um, who wrote a commentary on the entire Shulchan Aruch, and he says the following, when the Rambam writes held to be kosher, he does not mean someone who's especially God-fearing or a great chassid or tzaddik, rather anyone who behaves in accordance with the religion of Israel, dons a talit and tefillin, prays three times a day, washes his hands before eating, and guides his household properly in the way of our holy Torah. That is what he calls held to be kosher. And it is possible that in some detail he is suspect because he doesn't take it so seriously, but for all other things he's called kosher. In other words, basically he's saying, we're not looking... Well, how would you put this in your own words, what the Aruch HaShulchan is saying? What's the standard that we're looking for? He lives a Jewish life. Exactly. 
In other words, we're looking for someone who lives a Jewish life. We're not, we're not checking the length of his tzitzit, right? That, that, that's an expression in Hebrew. Right? We're, not, we're not checking to see that his tzitzit are the right length. The guy is living a Jewish life. So, so, so what is it that we're looking at? So based on all of these sources, what, do you, what would you say are the elements that are underlying? Because really what the, what the core issue of, is over here, and if I go back to, this, to, 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 to these chavra that I'm talking to, um, it's a very delicate conversation. Because the, what's the conversation really about? The conversation is about, can I trust you when you say the food is kosher? And what's the implication if I say I can't trust you because you yourself don't keep kosher? Is the implication that somebody who doesn't keep kosher is that um, orthodox people never lie. <laughs> and non-orthodox people, just you can't trust them. It's kind of hard to make a case when, there's a, when a former chief rabbi is, is sitting in jail today because of, because of, because of uh, bribery, right? If I'm guilty for bribery. So it's hard to make the case. So, 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 so what's underlying? Yeah. Okay, good. So one issue would be, would, be, would be knowledge or expertise. In other words, do you have, you say it's kosher, but if you don't keep kosher yourself, you know, it's a very common, for instance, phenomenon. We'll find people say, well, there's no meat, right? It's all, it's, it's all um, milk products. You know, we're, we're in Israel. I'm speaking here in my own cultural context. Where in Israel, what could, what could possibly not be kosher, right? So, so a person who doesn't, who doesn't prescribe himself does, is, might, is not aware of, for instance, infestation issues, um, is not, might not be aware of trumot and masrot of tithes, might not be aware of the sensitivities of wine and cheese. Um, in other words, there are, there are, there's knowledge where somebody who is strict in the orthodox sense, okay? And, and remember, right over here, over here, looking around, I'm assuming we have a mixed crowd in terms of where, where, where everybody's, everybody's level of observance, everybody's halakhic world. Um, what, what, I'm, what, what I'm speaking about over here is orthodox supervision, okay? Orthodox supervision. In other words, how do we, and, and by the way, the orthodox supervision is interesting to me because it touches upon the question of how can we continue to eat together? In other words, if an Orthodox person walks into a restaurant that's owned by someone who's not Orthodox, or if I go to somebody's house who's not Orthodox, home is not Orthodox, the question of can I trust you and the question of how can we continue to eat together are, to me, are, are, are touch upon core social dynamics, which are crucial in terms of understanding as somebody who's committed his life towards building a pluralistic Jerusalem. Um, the questions of how do we coexist are really, are, are really what, are, what, are, what, what, what are fascinating to me. So I come to this as an Orthodox rabbi, not out of the interest of protecting my flock, but out of the interest of building, of building trust and building relationship. Yeah. So why does it seem that um, the Orthodox world tries to outglot each other? Boy, I'm trying to think about how do I, I, I think I'd like to come back to that question a little bit later. Okay. okay? And if I forget, then please remind me when we get to the questions. Um, yeah. Quick comment. Sure. And I've, I've had this happen to me and seen it where it works in reverse. For me personally, I've gone into restaurants where I didn't appear to be Jewish enough where I wasn't served. Oh, yeah. And that happened in Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. It's a flip, a flip it side of the same question. It is a flip side of it. It works both ways. Right. Very interesting. 
So one issue that we spoke about is expertise. There are a couple of other things, other dimensions that come up over here. Okay. Another possibility is that a person might have the knowledge, but do they care about it as much as I care about it if they don't keep kosher themselves uh, at the same level? So good. It touch. It it, 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 it. it. You're talking honesty. You're talking about the ethical character. You're talking about, uh, you know, a person, for instance, he, the the a waiter or a restaurant would never serve a peanut to someone who has a peanut allergy. Because they know it's real, right? But when it comes to something which they themselves don't prescribe to, it, it presents an ethical challenge and an ethical test of a much higher order, especially let's say let's say let's say. Somebody makes a mistake, right? Let's say you're cooking up a pot of your, your split pea soup, right? And all of a sudden you see a, 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 an insect fly into the soup and you go to scoop it out and you can't find it, okay? So for somebody who keeps kosher, it's as much of an issue as, 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 as bacon, right? Eating that insect. There's a piece of bacon in the, in, in the split pea soup. For somebody who doesn't keep kosher, it's a little extra protein, you know? <laughs> um, what, what the customer doesn't know won't kill him, especially if you stand, especially, especially in a restaurant setting. Um, you know, is the person going, is, what are the chances uh, somebody might say, what, what, what he doesn't know won't kill him, right? Um, so so there's, there's a, an ethical test of a higher order. And by the way, the, 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 the third issue, which also comes to play over here in a restaurant setting, is, this, is, is there's, a, there's an ulterior motive of profit. In other words, a restaurant, first of all, if it, very often non-kosher um, ingredients are cheaper than kosher ingredients, especially when you talk about cheese or meat, okay? So a restaurant, uh, a restaurant owner without scruples stands to make a buck by misrepresenting. Um, and, 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 and similarly, if he has to throw out a pot of ho oh, oh, the whole day's Batch of soup, right? Which is which is he's going to feel it in his pocket. So, so, so you 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 come over here to questions which 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 are, and by the way, they're not uniquely questions around around kashrut. I mean, um, you have the same questions of of moral character, ethical character, in issues of of, of um, oh boy, not sanit sanitization, right? San Sanitation. I knew I was getting the word right. <laughs> in issues of sanitation in, 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 a, in a restaurant, in a kitchen, right? The guy's making his whole pot of split pea soup, and, he, and all of a sudden he sneezes, and he's not feeling so well, right? So, like, we'd have to be, we, 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 don't, think, we don't want to think about it, but we'd have, to be, we'd have to be very naive to think that it never happens, right? So, so, so the, you know, these are, these are, these are certain tests. And, and, and the question is, how do you, you know, let's just, let's just turn this over because I want to see, um, actually, sorry, before we turn it over, go, go back to the, the last source on the previous page. This is the bottom line in the Shulchan Aruch, okay, which is the primary source for, for halakha uh, as, as, uh, as, as we Orthodox practice it. One who is suspect in eating a certain forbidden food, f food, whether forbidden Torah or rabbinic law, one cannot rely on that person regarding the kashrut of the same food. And if one is a guest by such a person, he should not eat of the foods for which the person is suspect. If you turn the page, you'll see the Ashkenazic annotation of the Ramah, okay? The Shulchan Aruch, Rav Yosef Karo, is of course a Sephardi. Um, and the 
um, he issued psaq for the Jews from the African continent. And uh, the Ramah is an Ashkenazi. Um, and some say that even from a person who is not suspect but is not held to be kosher either, it is forbidden to buy wine or the other things that are liable to prohibition. But if one is a guest by such a person, one may eat by him. So he, the Ramah is saying, first of all, the financial motive plays a serious role. In other words, it's, it's more problematic to buy it from him than to eat it in his home. I mean, but the second thing that the Ramah has is he seems to say the default position is that you, so someone is, is not trustworthy until, until proven so, right? Even a person who's not suspect but it's not held to be kosher. But you have no reason to suspect him, but you don't know for a fact that, that, that he's keeping kosher. Okay? If I'm walking down the street past an apple orchard, and there's a sign that says, help yourself, I can't take, that, uh, take an apple. Um, well, that depends. If you're in Phoenix... If you're in Israel, if you're in Israel, there might be, well, I mean, you could maybe take an apple, but you'd have to take off Trumot and Masroth. You'd have to make sure that the apple was kosher yourself. But if it was an orchard owned by the Arab uh, population, I shouldn't take an, Arab, an apple. Um, what's, what's, the, what's, what's your concern for, of the, over that apple? I haven't given this time. Yeah. So first of all, apples grown by, by, not, by somebody who's not Jewish aren't, aren't obligated in tithes. Um, so, so, so an apple can be trafed. An apple can be forbidden to consume. I'm not sure if I would call it trafe, well. but an apple, an apple can be for, forbidden to consume. If it has not had trumot and masrot, if it hasn't had tithes taken off of it, then it can be forbidden to consume. Let me ask this question then. Yeah. If, you're, if, you're, if you're an Orthodox and running the, the kashrut in Israel, and you have a conservative who has a farm and raises lettuce, as an Orthodox rabbi, is that lettuce kosher? Is that lettuce not kosher? So basically you're asking this question over here, and that's Let's move into what, what, you know, what do we do to build, to build that kind of relationship of trust, okay? Um, so the first thing that we did, that we're going to set aside the sources for now. Maybe we'll come back to them a little bit later. The first thing that we did is we had a big protest, okay? We called it, this, this was based on a very popular a pop song in Israel uh, at the time. It was a pop song called Mashiach Loba. Mashiach Gam Lo Mashiach isn't coming, he's not even picking up the phone. Messiah is not coming, he's not even picking up the phone. So we called our, this, this protest, Mashgiach <laughs> Loba. The, the kosher supervisor doesn't, doesn't show up. And basically we began to build buzz around this issue. The issue that there were these restaurants that, that wanted to be kosher because they wanted, they wanted people who keep kosher to be able to eat in their restaurants, but, but they refused to work with the corrupt establishment. Um, and what we suggested is let's build an alternative. And we built an, we built an alternative form of supervision. And this is how it works. We start off with training, okay? And this is what we did in the Salam Shabazi. We started off learning the laws of kashrut. Teach, learning, learning, in other words, that people who don't keep kosher, if they want to be serving food to people who do keep kosher, then they have to concern themselves with what does it mean? What does it mean? What's required? By the way, that effort is a beautiful effort in solidarity for, 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 the, for the restaurant owner to be making the effort. You know, I don't believe in this a single bit but I believe in you as a person I want to have, you know. So, Rabbi, you having competitive clergy come in and say, we are aware of the Holocaust at the same level that the, sup the regular supervisors are available. Yes. So now there is somebody that is aware of what's supposed to happen, and you want to train the restaurant staff to clarify what... 
So first of all, we want to train the restaurant st staff in terms of building, in terms of building the, the, the mutuality and the understanding, okay? That's the first step. Because, because over here, the question is, again, the question is, uh, you know, if we're talking about the moral, like, like the underlying moral character, ethical character, if, if, if there's not, if there's not, if uh, ethics and care grow from communication, okay, and understanding. So it starts with the conversation. And by the way, that issue, that whole issue of conversation and talk and dialogue and face-to-face -face encounter, in other words, that the waiter or the, or, the, or the person in the kitchen, it's one thing if he's dealing with a pot of soup for an anonymous customer. It's another thing if he's dealing with a pot of soup for um, Avivit's people. Avivit is the name of our, of our first supervisor, who, by the way, was a woman. Um, we take affirmative action and give preference to women in this profession in our organization because the chief rabbinate will not employ women as supervisors. So our first two supervisors were women. Um, and all of a sudden, for the kitchen staff, the kosher customer isn't an anonymous face, but it's Avivit's people. <laughs> and it's the people she's wor worried about and concerned about, and the people that she's, she's, on the pr that, that, that she's talking about. Um, so we start off with educating the staff. Then we have regular visits of mashkichim. Okay, we have professional staff, both paid volunteers and both paid field workers and volunteers. And we also sign a covenant of trust. And what the covenant of trust is, you can see over here we're signing it with this, this is a restaurant in Sarona uh, called the Whiskey Museum, a very high-end uh, high meat restaurant in Sarona Market in Tel Aviv. Um, and um, um, we sign a document with them. What this document does, by the way, um, first of all, you might ask, isn't, how, is, isn't this illegal what you're doing? What about the law to prevent fraud in Kashrut from 1983, which says you can't use the word kosher unless you have certification for the chief rabbinate? The answer is we don't use the word kosher. Okay? Our document speaks about the Jewish law as it pertains to food and its preparation. <laughs> um, and, 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 and this has been to the Supreme Court already. Um, not from our volition, one of our restaurants actually brought it to the Supreme Court. And at this point, the Supreme Court's ruling is that our documents are legal. The chief rabbinate, by the way, are still trying to challenge it in, in, legal, uh, in, in legal circles. And um, these are just pictures of our staff. This is Avivit, who was our first mashkicha, our first uh, kosher supervisor. Um, and basically what we do is we, we, we meet all the requirements of Orthodox, of Orthodox halacha, replacing authority and suspicion with community building and trust. Okay, in other words, the point over here is... Now, by the way, it's not giving trust, it's building trust. And that's very important. In other words, it's not, it's not that we trust the restaurant owner because he says it's kosher. It's that, we, it's, it's that we build strong communication and honest communication and clear boundaries. And by the way, full transparency. When I say full transparency, we, we visit each location three times a week for, for, um, for up to an hour, no less than a half an hour, and up to an hour. And one of those, those three visits is a surprise visit at a completely random time in order that there be full transparency. And the restaurant owners sometimes say, well, wait a minute, we thought you trust us. And we say, we trust you because we've built transparency. In other words, we've built a relationship with transparency and boundaries and communication. Now, now that, that, that very act of building trust and building solidarity, I think, is at the foundation of how do you build a Jerusalem which has, which has Palestinians and Israelis and Christians and Jews and Muslims and ultra-Orthodox and secular. How do you build a city where everybody lives together? 
So we're, we're creating a laboratory with, within a very particular field which touches upon you know, core issues of, 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 of social solidarity. So all of, your, all of your establishments have a concept where the supervisor comes and goes. Yes. There, there is no permanent person standing in, Correct. in the establishment. Correct. Okay. Um, and, and maybe I'll maybe I'll use that your question as a segue to, to go back to your to go back to your question about uh, about glot, okay? Out glotting each other. Out glotting each other. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll tell you something. I actually believe in. I, I have a positive attitude towards a diversity of levels of observance. Okay. I don't have any problem with people who are much more strict than I am, and people who are much more strict than I am having their own. You know, part of what, what, what I'm doing in fighting the monopoly is saying why, is, 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 is saying why, I, I don't have a problem, by the way, with, 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 with the reform movement giving a reform uh, hashkacha, and the concern, which, which, which is always, that's like the specter in the closet that they, that, 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 that when, I'm, when I'm debating my orthodox colleagues, they always say, but if you succeed, the reformim will, will, will want to give their kashrut. And my answer is, gesundheit. hate. Like, why shouldn't, why shouldn't there be reform kashrut as long as there's transparency, as long as the customer knows what he's getting and can choose what he, what he prescribes to him. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Now, now it's, it's true that there is a competitive market in Kashrut in Israel. The competitive market in Kashrut in Israel is the ultra-Orthodox market. Okay? What we call Mahadrin. But what in America they call Glat. Okay? In Israel we call it Mahadrin. Um, it's like super-duper kosher. <laughs> because Glat is really a misnomer. Okay? Glat comes from a very particular issue of internal organs of, animal, of, 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 of beef and animals. Um, but it's come to mean super duper kosher. Glat means super duper kosher, which, which basically means keeping stringencies. And we do have a tradition in orthodoxy of, of making a distinction between baseline halakha and stringencies. That's part of our world. That Now, how is it that there are many, many private agencies in super duper kashrut? It's because they all are add-on levels of kashrut. In other words, any place which has, let's say, a badatz Beit Yosef, which is one of those higher levels of, more strict levels of kashrut, I don't want to call them higher, they're not higher, more strict levels of kashrut, let's not put a value judgment on it, <laughs> more strict levels of kashrut, they, they, they will already have rabbanut, and then on top of the rabbanut, they, they, they add, so that they're allowed to put the, the word kosher because they have chief rabbinate, and then once they have that, they can add another level. What we do is, our, our goal, because we're seeking to break the monopoly, is to give regular baseline kashrut, and only to places that will not work with the, with the chief rabbinate, because our whole, our whole mission is to, break, is to break that monopoly. So you see over here our supervisors, um, you know, one, of the, one of the big, we spoke, somebody mentioned before the issue of insects. Um, if, uh, restaurants that want to work with us spend a significant amount of time cleaning their lettuce. Um, and, um, and as a matter of, and, and our policy is that we don't come in as inspectors, we come in as part of the team. So that our people um, assist in the kitchen. They don't, they don't do all the work, but they assist in the kitchen with all of the kashrut um, related tasks. 
This is Chemda, another one of our another one of our Mashkichot. Um, this is Rabbi Oran Duvdevani, who is the head of Kashrut and Ashkachat Pratit. He's actually a recent acquisition. Um, he joined our organization this past Passover. Um, Rabbi Duvdevani built all of the, the kosher industry in Mexico. Okay, he's a worldwide, world-renowned expert in Kashrut. And he was a real coup. He was working for the chief rabbinate in Israel. And um, we hired him to do an external review of our, of our systems. And while he was doing the review and giving us feedback, and we were improving here and there, overall the, re the, review, the review was very positive. But we, we can't be clear he was not satisfied. So we made him an offer, and he came over. You'll see the headlines from that in a little, in a little while. Um, that's Rav Oren. Um, this is the document uh, which currently is, is displayed in our restaurants. This is based on a Supreme Court decision from about f five months ago, where the Supreme Court said that we're allowed, we can't use the word kosher, so the word kosher doesn't appear here. We even took the name of our organization out of our logo. Okay? Our organization is called Hashkacha Pratit, Private Supervision, and our legal team felt that that word Hashkacha Supervision would also be pushing the envelope legally. So we, 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 we we also to make a statement. We kind of put the we left the logo there just without <laughs> just without the words, with the words inside. But what we do what we do do is we specify, and this is what the Supreme Court said we're allowed to do. We specify all of our standards on the document. The the the, the premises is closed on Shabbat. All the meat comes from from kosher shechita. All the alcohol all the alcoholic beverages have been checked. All of the flour has been sifted in a fifty micron, uh, you know, level sifter. Um, et cetera, et cetera. It goes through all of the issues that have to do with kosher, with, with this particular menu. And by the way, this is custom made for every restaurant. In other words, there are things that will appear in some restaurants and not appear in others because we only put what's relevant to the restaurant on that list. And then at the bottom of the document, which is this is what also a provision based on the ruling of the Supreme Court, Chilels eno machzik b'kashrut. Um, Chillers does not have a kosher certificate as defined by law in, uh, according to the, to the law from 1983. Okay, so we basically say this is not, this is not what is understood as law to be a kosher certificate. And, and by the way, this, this, has been, this has been more than satisfactory. Our restaurants are thrilled with the document. They feel it's better than the certificate that the chief rabbin had have because it actually gives over. It doesn't simply say it's kosher here, but it gives information. So right now we're, uh, uh, right, perfect timing. Hashkachat <laughs> Pratit currently has 42, 42 locations um, um, in four cities in Israel, mostly in Jerusalem, but also in Tel Aviv and Ashkelon and Beersheba. Um, and um, and I'll just, I just want to show you some headlines from the last, from all the headlines you're going to see are from 2017, and maybe then we'll open up for Q&A and you're first in line. So all, all, all the headlines that you're going to see now are from, are from 2017. We've had, and by the way, this is only from the English press for, for, this, uh, for this particular talk. Um, there was much more in the, uh, in the Hebrew press as well. Um, women working to break rabbinate's monopoly over, over kashrut supervision. Independent authority defies rabbinate, issues kosher certificates. Okay, also from the Jerusalem Post. This, by the way, is from Rabbi, when Rabbi Duvdevani came over. Okay, so I mentioned Pesach time. Rabbinate heavyweight defects to private kashrut initiative. Kashrut <laughs> 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 revolution, popular Ariel hotel switches sides and battle with rabbinate. See, what's, 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 what's actually important to be, to be appreciated here is that we're, 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 
we're first and foremost activists. Okay, we're not in this. We're not. I mean, on the day the monopoly breaks, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna be. If anybody here is interested in being in the kashrut business, I'm <laughs> gonna make an exit. I'm gonna sell the whole thing to somebody who's interested in running a kashrut organization. Why are you fine? So, so this this has been our, our latest battle since the last since the last Supreme Court decision. Our restaurants are being harassed. Our restaurants are being harassed by the rabbinate. Um, by the way, this this headline just last week they canceled this fine. Okay, they, they uh, the, the 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 legal counsel of the chief rabbinate required them to cancel this fine. Um, okay, that's so so basically, that's the overview. Okay. Um, and, um, and maybe we'll pause here for some questions, and then if we have time at the end, I want to look, see one more source with you from the Igorot Moshe. And, and just before we go, if I could encourage uh, or just invite questions to be on this particular topic or on the broader work we do as well as on the Jerusalem City Council and beyond. Also. Okay, great. great. Sure, happy to. We see that, that uh, the rest of the tours are embracing it, but how about the rest of the Orthodox community uh, is embracing the independent... Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, so maybe I'll just I'll just repeat the questions also for the microphone. Um, the um, so the question was what um, how is the how has the public received it? So I think that first of all the fact that the restaurants are working with us speaks for itself. In other words, restaurants are business people. Um, the um, they would not be working with our certificate if it didn't bring in the if it didn't bring in the business. Especially in Jerusalem, by the way, where if you if you don't have a kosher certificate, you lose at least thirty percent of your business. Um, so, so a restaurant can't afford to be open in Jerusalem without a kosher certificate unless they're one of the few restaurants that are niche and cater to the non-kosher market. But if you're a regular restaurant, you need a kosher certificate. Um, the bottom line is, is that um, the community which probably would rely on us less, which is the ultra-Orthodox community, are not big restaurant goers anyway, um, certainly not in the neighborhoods where we supervise. Um, the modern Orthodox community, or what we call in Israel the religious Zionist community. Um, uh, we're very well known. Part of, the, part of the advantage is that this project was started by a group of activists who were also, who were also uh, connected and people with public profiles. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that, I, that, that I'm, I'm, a, I'm active in a political party which, which has three seats on Jerusalem City Council, 10% of Jerusalem City Council, you know, represents an electorate of 18,000 people who voted for us um, who all became all became ambassadors for this project because they because they're they're networked with us. So we so in, in terms of the dynamic, it's a very it's a it's a very it's a, it's a it's a very successful dynamic. For instance, when you when you look at the other cities that we're in, you'll notice that the, the, we have the concentration of our restaurants in Jerusalem is much higher than Tel Aviv, Beersheba, and Ashkelon because in, because those are cities where we don't have that network, the same way we have in Jerusalem. Um, so I would say that um, in Jerusalem where um, where our document has almost as much value to the restaurant as the as the standard document um, in Tel Aviv and Ashkelon and Beersheba, it's a little bit less less so. Yeah. What do the restaurants pay for the certification? Okay, great question. So, first of all, if if when you have certification from the chief rabbinate, you pay a, a, a tax to the chief rabbinate, an annual tax, which is very reasonable. I think it's seven hundred shekels right now for the whole year. But then you pay your supervisor, your mashkiach. And that's one of the big problems with Rabbanut Kashrut, also in the Comptroller's report, and also in the Supreme Court case, is that the mashkiach, the supervisor, it works for the restaurant. Okay, he collects his paycheck from the restaurant, which creates a huge conflict of interest. Uh, 
Um, by the way, a two-way conflict of interest, because the mashkiach can say, give me a raise or I'll take away your certificate. And by the same token, the restaurant owner can say, you blow the whistle on what you just saw, you're fired. So it creates a huge two-way conflict of interest. And, um, and as a matter of fact, the rab chief rabbinate right now are speaking about changing that. They're speaking about changing it. I'll be impressed when they change it, not when they speak about changing it. The, um, the, the, the prices range around, uh, right, just for people who have a frame of rest preference, I think right now it's 3.5 shekels to the dollar. Um, prices range around um, between, let's say, let's say uh, 500 shekels to 1,500 shekels a month to the kosher supervisor. Um, and our rates right now are, are, are um, range between five and 700 shekels a month, so we're at the lower end of the chief rabbinate. Um, you said that you're a temporary visitor as opposed to a permanent employee. But the chief rabbinate also don't have the, 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 the mashkiach is an employee, but he's not permanent on the premises, not in regular kashrut. He also, he also, on the contrary, we know that in many cases he barely shows up. He shows up for a few minutes, a few minutes every couple of days opens the cabinets. The truth is it's a slippery slope in the kashrut industry because if you're a supervisor, if you're a mashgiach, you really feel like an idiot. Like, like three years in, you're still opening the same cabinet and seeing the same ingredients and think, you know, you really, you, you do begin to ask yourself, like, why do I need to be doing this? I trust these people. It's been years that they've been, which is one of the reasons, by the way, that we are very careful that our, that our staff actually work in the kitchen, because we feel like that gives them a reason to be there, and a reason to be involved, and, 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 and as opposed to, to going through the motions of supervising, which really can very easily degenerate to a couple of minutes a, a week. Uh, so, and, by, and by the way, the, the restaurants are happy to pay the money, because it's, it's, it's I mean, they're, they're, business, they're business people. In other words, they're, they're, if you, you pay, let's say, 700 shekels, even if you're paying the higher end of the chief rabbinate, 1,500 shekels a month for a, for a 120,000 shekel uh, sh uh, you know, jump in your bottom line. Right? And those are like the numbers for restaurants in Jerusalem. 30% you know, of your bottom line uh, is, is, is the kosher consumer. It's a no-brainer, right? For any business owner, it's a no-brainer. But what drives them crazy, also because they're businessmen, is when the guy doesn't show up. He shows up for a few minutes because they value their money. That What am I paying for? I'm paying for it feels like you're paying the mafia. It feels like you're paying for protection. And it drives them crazy. So, so it's, it's, it's not so much the cost as much as the, as much as the cost versus the value that drives, that, that drives them crazy. How many are on your staff? So right now we have seven supervisors um, and three administrative staff. Rabbi Duvdevani, a CEO and a spokesperson. Because we're, because we're activists, we also have a full-time spokesperson. Um, and then seven supervisors that work, work under them. I yes. can ask a two-quick question, but how do the restaurateurs uh, purchase their provisions? For example, meat, mm -hmm. wouldn't they have to buy yes. it? from who it is you're trying to break yeah. away from. And so I've been wanting to ask the second part of this so yeah. you understand why I'm asking that. Uh, uh, w once visiting a winery in the Upper Galil, we had a really nice tour, and uh, the person probably hopefully now sells wine to your establishments. He would have no part of the kosher rabbinet saying that his wine was kosher, and his reasons were really pretty amazing, I won't get into those, but he wouldn't do it, which really affected his bottom line because he couldn't sell to the United States well because it didn't have yeah. the kosher symbol on it. 
are you working towards that end? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I wish that we didn't have to rely on on the chief rabbinate's supervision for our, for our ingredients. Because that's really the Achilles heel of our whole, of our whole concept. Mm -hmm. we, we, we really don't feel that it's a trustworthy establishment, and yet, and yet uh, you have to start somewhere. In other words, we're not, we're not on the level yet where we can, we also can't compete with the chief rabbinate, in other words, for, for, a, for a, a factory which sells countrywide to come on board with us would not be practical. Um, because what we have right now are local networks, but, but um, we don't have the kind of brand yet that a factory could take a chance on, on shifting over to us. Um, so, so really it's for lack of any, any, anything better to do. There is a place, by the way, where ideologically I feel, and this, this actually touches upon kosher in America, um, and I think this is important to appreciate. Um, one of the... Um, it's important to know that kosher agencies have an interest in, in, uh, in bad-mouthing other kosher agencies, okay? Those kosher agencies also have a vested interest in their reputation and have a vested interest, interest that their competition should not have a good reputation. And that's, that's, that, that creates a lot of the darker dynamics between kosher agencies in America also. And part of our claim is that there's not enough self-awareness in, in kosher food. In other words, a any industry wants to develop best practice, okay? And in developing best practice, kosher agencies would do well to, to develop a code of ethics. And part of that code of ethics, I think, would be that a kosher agency should not comment on other kosher agencies, should completely avoid any comment or any judgment on other kosher agencies. And because of that, our policy is that, that we allow ingredients in our restaurants from any recognized standard, um, standard kosher supervision. Okay? In other words, if somebody is an Orthodox rabbi and he has a reputable kosher agency, we don't, we don't um, grade uh, kashruyot and say, um, now, how does that serve the, the, the customer? How does it serve the consumer? It serves the consumer in that it creates, is that, is, in that it creates a, a network of what, what, what really could be called um, private regulation. And there's a really interesting professor. Anyone here eat organic, like primarily organic? So, so um, in the organic industry, it's a very similar thing. You see an organic sign, and you don't know what it means. There's so many of them. Some of them are strict. Some of them are, it's a very, very similar. So this, this, this professor in the University of Albany, uh, University of New York in Albany, published, published a book on how the organic market could learn from the kashrut market how to create a private regulatory network. Because if, let's say I'm the OU, and, my, and I want to give kashrut to a project, to a, to a product, and I see that that product has an ingredient, and that ingredient has a star K, or vice versa. So how do I know if I could rely on that kashrut? So there's an interest already in, among the agencies in creating an industry standard, something, things which are acceptable across the board, and also kind of creating some sort of leveling of... of now, where does it break down? It breaks down in, in local communities, okay? Because what happens in local communities, unfortunately, is, and this is also something which I, may, may, may be happening here in Phoenix, maybe may, may not, but it happens in many, many communities, is this, if, there's a, if, if, if there's what they call a VAD, okay? And the VAD is a strong VAD. So what happens is under the guise, thank you, this can still happen. 
under the guise of um, under the guise of caring for the community standards, really what they do is they they prevent competition. And there's very little transparency about the fact that they that the Vad usually has a personal interest in not having competition. Um, and it's our contention that competition is the best thing for Kashrut standards. Because when you have competition, you have competition for transparency, you have competition for reliability, because a kosher certificate is as valuable as its brand, as the trust that the community has in it. So you have competition for transparency, you have competition for reliability, but you also have competition over pricing, and you also have competition over service, quality of service to the restaurant. So competition is really the best the only way to provide reliable kashrut at a reasonable standard over time is, is a competitive environment. That's our, that's our belief. So, um, as you indicated, your, your, greater, your greater concern here is not about kashrut, um, but ultimately to break the monopoly and ultimately have a more pluralistic Jerusalem, a more pluralistic Israel, um, where there's respect in, in the culture and relationships. So, I wonder what data do we have that to break the uh, tie between religion and state? more effective to take a grassroots entrepreneurial perspective as compared to a top-down sort of political. You're sort of betting here in all this energy that the grassroots approach will break the monopoly more than, a, than political advocacy. And I wonder sort of what data we have on, on either end. Yeah, so I wouldn't say it's data. It's not data. It's, um, it's, um, it's a certain reading of a political map, okay? Um, and and, and I'll, 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 I'll answer briefly. I don't know how familiar this audience is with politics in Israel, especially politics around religion and state. Um, but the, the, res, the, the reality that exists today is that all the issues which have to do with halakha and Jewish identity are legislated in accordance with the agenda of the ultra-Orthodox. Okay? Why has that been the case consistently, Knesset after Knesset? Even the previous Knesset to this one, which was the most liberal Knesset we've known, most liberal government we've known in a long time, were very limited in the, in, in the changes they were able to make on the issues of religion and state. And the reason is very simple. Most of the country care less about Judaism and Jewish identity and halakha than they do about security and economics. There is one large organized group who care more about Jewish identity and Judaism and Torah than they do about economics and security, and that is the ultra-Orthodox community, who have a very strong voting bloc, which means that every coalition government which has formed in Israel over the last, over the last decades has always received support from the ultra-Orthodox for their platforms in economics and security in return for giving them what they want in the area of religion. Okay, so our strong, so those of us who want to wrest the monopoly from the ultra-Orthodox in the area of, of religion and state, um, our, our, the Knesset will never be our strong arena. Okay, there's work that can be done in the Knesset, but it, will, it, won't be our, it will never be our strong arena. The same thing can be said about the courts. The Supreme Court has a history of very little intervention in issues of religion. Because, why? Because what the Supreme Court says is, is uh, as, as, as their simple equation, the Supreme Court says as follows. We are not experts on halakha, nor are we experts on Judaism. We are experts on the law. Now, there's a governmental institution 
who are meant to be the experts on halakha, and that is the chief rabbinate. So the Supreme Court really d does not like intervening on anything which has to do with Judaism. They've done it in some rare cases, for instance, conversion. Okay, the Supreme Court ruled that non-Orthodox conversion must be recognized. The Supreme Court recently, we had a huge victory. We, we fought a big case in, in the Supreme Court for autonomy of women in the mikvah. In other words, women who want to go to the mikvah without another woman present watching them go, which is the standard Orthodox practice. But women who, who, who want to choose to have privacy in the mikvah should have such privacy. We took it to the Supreme Court and we won. And that's happening now in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, um, it's happening countrywide. But, this, but, but I can count on, on two hands the amount of cases that of religion and state that the Supreme Court have ruled um, against the chief rabbinate. Okay, because the standard. So because of that, because of the political um, equations and the legal equations, our feeling is the grassroots is the way to go. By the way, we're not the only ones. Uh, for instance, there's a huge there's an alternative Orthodox beitin for conversion now, Giorka Halacha. Which, I, which we believe was inspired by our work um, in Kashrut. And so, the, so then, so then, what you would say, you didn't come here to critique the diaspora, but the diaspora advocacy is really kind of foolish. And we're constantly hitting against the, our head against the wall for a more pluralistic Israel on a political level, as opposed to being in touch with the sort of grassroots efforts and empowering those. Yeah, but I, I would say yes and no. In other words, yes. I think that the uh, that the political arena is not is not should not be the, at the forefront. Um, the place where I would disagree is that North American the North American philanthropic community has already identified um, that, that that conclusion. And Hashkacha Pratit, our project is supported by major foundations in the U.S. the New York Federation, the Schusterman Foundation, the Leishtag Foundation, um, the Maimonides Fund, and the Aviv Foundation all support our work. And they support our work because they recognize that the grassroots efforts are really are, are really the way to go. Um, the um, you know there are those who are still focused on fighting things, on fighting things in court. You know the um, you know I, the, the, the probably the leader of the pack is Iraq, which is the reform the reform movement's uh, you know action action committee for legal issues and um, who bring who consistently bring things to the Supreme Court. I I don't think that they have a lot to show for those efforts. Um, and um, I think it's important to know also sometimes that. Um, some of the things, one of the things that we have to recognize, kind of the, the, the um, one of the takeaways from the last election in the United States, I think, and from activists in general, is that um, sometimes it's very easy, we, we, we get caught up in fighting battles, fighting losing battles, because they feed our, they feed our, um, our victim mentality, because they make us feel self-righteous, <laughs> right? Um, and um, and I and and I think one of the things that that we're discovering in Israel is that is that um, instead of being the, the victim, just simply doing it right, simply doing it right. So that's also part of our name, Ashkacha Pratit. The organization is called Ashkacha Pratit, which is a play on words. So Ashkacha Pratit means private supervision, but it means something else. What does this Ashkacha Pratit mean? The, the individual divine providence. It's a catchphrase in in medieval Jewish philosophy for God's involvement in our day-to-day our -day life. Hashkacha Pratit, God's private supervision. So we, one of the reasons we chose the name is really what we're saying, and this is a quote from Rabbi, Rabbi Lord uh, Jonathan Sachs, um, who, um, who said that religion becomes stronger the more it releases power. And the more religion tries to consolidate power, it becomes weaker. 
And that's part of what we're saying is, is um, if you do it right, if you simply do it right and, and leave, leave the power play to God, <laughs> right? Because really there's a very, the, the, the ultra-Orthodox um, obsession with we, we must be in control or else who knows what will happen. I feel that there's a very deep heresy in that attitude, uh, almost as if God can't take care of himself or herself. <laughs> yeah. When you use the term ultra-Orthodox, are you referring to the Haredim? Yes. So, so what, what percentage of the population of Israel are they? Well, yeah, um, I, don't, I don't really have numbers to give you. Um, I wonder how they have so much in, in Jerusalem. Influence. In Jerusalem, they're one third of the city. Okay, Jerusalem is one third ultra orthodox, one third Haredi, one third Palestinian, and one third the rest of us. Um, so, um, in Jerusalem, the equations are very harsh. Um, and by the way, when I say Haredi. You know, it brings it, it conjures up the uh, you know black hats, black and white, black and white dress. Um, but um, it's important to know that today there's a very large growing community of what we call Haredi Lilmi, which are which are religious Zionists whose halachic approach is an extremist, is a fundamentalist extremist halachic approach. So, so, um, so really, we're facing a very a very strong wave. Of fundamentalism, but at the same time, we're also facing, and this is what, what, what's, what's exciting: is I'm privileged to serve in Jerusalem at a time when there's a renaissance of pluralistic, open-minded, um, open-hearted um, uh, residents of Jerusalem who are building an alter alternative vision. Um, today, on Jerusalem City Council, City Council has 30 uh, has 31 seats, 30 City Council seats plus the mayor. Okay, the mayor is elected directly. So there's 30, 30 seats on city council. Um, city council is about half and half, half ultra-Orthodox, half, half the rest. But out of those 30 seats on city council, there are seven seats held by people who represent a pluralistic vision for the city. Three of our party and four of another party. Um, actually, I would say even eight, because I would count, count merits, which is the extreme left. So we're talking about eight, eight out of 30. Seats on city council in Jerusalem are people who are committed to an inclusive, pluralistic vision for the city. You could sway things. And by and, and by the way, that's up. The last the last city council there was three. Okay, and in the next and we have uh, we're starting an election year. One of the reasons I, I, I um, passed my seat on city council on to the next person on my list is I was asked to be the chairman of the board and prepare the party for the 2008, October 2018 elections. We've got one year till elections. Um, and our goal in those elections, right now we have three seats, our goal is to double, we, we, we feel we have a realistic chance of doubling our seats to six. How much longer is Barkat the mayor? That's the million dollar question, I can't answer. We, we know, but nobody even knows if he's going to run again. Do you support the pluralistic mm -hmm. vision? Barkat, Barkat has, uh, is, is conclu concluding his second term. In his first term he did tremendous things for the city and we supported his re-election. Unfortunately in this term we feel that he's lost his focus and he's given a lot of ground to the fund more fundamentalist um, sides. Um, I, I say this as someone who until, until recently was the head of the opposition at city council, so I'm not objective. Mm -hmm. But, um, yes? Are there districts in the city, or, is it, or do you vote a list? You vote a list. You vote a list, but, but, uh, but uh, there, are, there are some neighborhoods that have their own, that have their own lists. Um, and also, council members tend to have an affinity for the neighborhoods they live in. So, um, 
there's a certain diversity of representation. Um, how are we doing for time? Okay, so maybe uh, maybe two more questions, and then maybe we'll see one more source, and then we'll we'll call it a night. Yeah. How many people do actually in Israel care about kashrut? Tremendous amount, eighty percent. In the recent polls, eighty percent of Israelis said that they that they um, prefer to eat kosher food. That was the question. Okay. The question was wasn't do you only eat kosher food? The question was do you prefer to eat kosher food? And 80% answered yes. Um, so, and, and, and the trend right now is towards more kosher. For instance, Tel Aviv now has a wave of kosher restaurants, which has been written about extensively in, 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 the, in the press. Is, is that that's Jews, right? Jews. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Jews. Um, so so um, people are trying to actually figure out why is, why is first of all, there's a renaissance of secular Jewish identity. Um, the, uh, the liberal movements, the conservative movement, and the reform movement are growing. Um, there's also a renaissance of, of, of secular study halls, Batei Midrash, adult education, Kabbalot Shabbat. Um, and there's a sense that more and more people who might not be strictly orthodox want to eat kosher food. There's also been a huge, huge influx in certain cities, including Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim, and other cities of French, of French Aliyah. And the French and the French the French community tends to be a very traditional community, even if they're not Orthodox. It's you know it's different. You know many European communities are are um, especially if they're heavily Sephardic. Um, you'll find people who don't who don't uh, don't strictly observe Orthodox halacha, but still equate their Judaism with certain standards of observance. Um, yeah. Anyone? craving a kosher hamburger. And the guy at the hotel said, well, you're going to have a lot of trouble finding a kosher hamburger. Right. So, I'm glad it's changing. So that's changing. That's changing literally over the last year and a half, two years. You can find, almost anywhere in Tel Aviv, you can find kosher food. With, it's not like Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, you have to, it, it takes an effort to find someplace not kosher. In Tel Aviv, it still takes, you might have to walk, and you might have to pass by 10 places to find the 11th place that's kosher. But anywhere you're at, um, it's um, even easier than New York City. It's all of you to find kosher food. <laughs> I just came from New York City. The amount of kosher food in New York is, is, is unbelievable. Uh, yeah. So, so we're dealing with one of the ethical dimensions around religion and state. But so, Tzedek um, Chevrati, uh, which was, which was, oh, sorry, Tal Chevrati in Israel, which was interested in the treatment of the workers in these restaurants and handicap accessibility, seems to have not succeeded. I wonder if you have any insight as to why you've had a lot of success here and why, why, why they kind of struggle to explore food from some other ethical dimensions yeah. as well. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that the reason the reason uh, the Tava Chavrati didn't succeed is because they didn't have a financial model. Um, in other words, first of all, our, one of the reasons we're attract our project is attractive to, to philanthropists, for, for philanthropists is because 30% of our budget is self-generated income. And every year that grows. In other words, in five years, 70% of our budget will be self-generated income. So, so um, it's, um, it's very easy for, for, the, for, for us to compete for the philanthropic dollar because, because the foundation sees an exit. The foundation of the, of the, of the donor sees an exit down the line. Whereas Tava Chevrati, year after year, 
couldn't, couldn't, couldn't crack that nut. And really what they did, by the way, they're still around, but what they did is they shifted, they kind of pivoted more to in, the, in the educational direction. Because as an educational product, they have a much more realistic financial model than they do providing supervision in restaurants. Um, you know, we, we, we also work together with them, but we don't require, um, you know, one of the things that we, that we made, decisions we made early on is not to require, is not to make our, our kashrut dependent on any other ethical issue, specifically because the Rabbanut do, 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 were doing it with Christmas trees and belly dancers. You know, we didn't want them to say, you know, oh, so you care about minimum wage and, and, and make your kashrut. We care about belly dancers. <laughs> we wanted kosher food to be kosher food, and that's it. So, you know, that was a strategic decision we made. Um, but, I, but I wish that they were they were fully functional like they were once upon a time. We would be encouraging our restaurants to work with them. Yeah. What's the percentage of young people these days that are not getting married by the Rabbanut? It's a, there are growing numbers. There are growing numbers. It's probably in the hundreds. Um, we're also seeing a trend of orthodox young orthodox couples who ideologically do not want to be married by the Rabbanut. Um, and um, and there are a number of organizations that are doing work in that in that area as well. Um, I, I, no, I, I don't know of anybody who has real statistics. The, the so what happens to these couples if they get married by somebody else? And that's so they have two choices. Married. They can either choose to live together as Yeduim Batsibur, as what would be the English equivalent? Common law. Uh, like a common law marriage. In other words, it's not a civil marriage. They're not even called marriage. But they have, a st they have legal status, which is equivalent to being married. Um, and... Um, and that's one option. Another option is they can get married out of the country and then come back and register as married in Israel. Right? Cyprus is a popular mm -hmm. tourism destination for that. Um, and, um, and, and, but, but you should know that, that for an Orthodox rabbi to perform an Orthodox wedding outside of the chief rabbinate, not register the chief rabbinate, is, 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 um, is, a, um, is a felony punishable by two years in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, I, 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 a reform rabbi, by the way, can perform a reform wedding and it's perfectly legal. But an orthodox rabbi cannot perform an orthodox wedding. No, no, you, uh, they, could be, they, they could be legally married. They, they, we have some colleagues who are doing this as civil disobedience. Yeah. If it was enforced, they would have the rest of their lives in prison right now. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, so and, and by the way, it's not only, not, only, not only the rabbi, the couple as well. The couple as well. Um, every guest. Excuse me. <laughs> every guest. No, not the guest. <laughs> I mean, it'll, I, I, we don't believe that it will happen. We don't believe that it will ever, ever happen. First of all, we don't believe that the rabbinate, the chief rabbinate, have been their own worst enemy. By the way, all, the whole way, they're their own worst enemy. But we don't believe that they're that clueless that they're going to actually try and throw somebody in jail for for performing a wedding. Um, but if they did, it, there's no doubt that no doubt in my mind, the Supreme Court would not would not would not allow it. <laughs> Uh, no. You said that the reform rabbi could perform a marriage and they are legally, legally married. They are yeduim batzibur. They are not legally right, right now. There's a, right, right now there's an organization called Havaya. Havaya are, are, are facilitating alternative alternative weddings, and they and they provide the different the different possibilities. You know, either either they, either a couple can get a document that they are yeduim batzibur. Or a couple can go can, can go to Chutzlaret and get married, and but there's no legal, there's, but there's no, the, the, there's there's no felony involved. Right. In other words, that's yeah. So maybe just for the last five minutes, I want to go back to a to, to a tshuva from uh, the tshuva that we have over here from Rav Moshe Feinstein. Okay. Um, 
We're not going to do it inside because we're just like in the, in the final minutes of our. So you'll have this to take home. I'm just going to I'm just going to share it with you outside. Um, he was asked the following question. He was asked, um, this is of course um, still with uh, in, in regard to the Soviet Union, uh, still behind the Iron Curtain. Um, he was asked about 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 um, elderly parents who were living with their children. And the elderly parents kept kosher, and the children did not. And, they, and he was asked, can, now, and he was told that the, elder, that the, that the parents were, were refusing to eat because the food wasn't kosher, and that, it was, and that it was actually detrimental to their health. And what should they do? So, so look over here in, um, just, just we'll read the bold, the bold sentences, okay? The whole power of trustworthiness the Torah gave to any person who was held to be kosher, like a tzaddik or a great chassid, such as Moshe and Aaron, and it required that there be two. In other words, you need to have testimony. You need to have testimony from people who keep kosher and who are completely trustworthy. But all this is only concerning trustworthiness when you don't know the person personally. So this goes back to the concept of the fact that the individual cannot bring <coughs> testimony about themselves. Um, so that's why we need two. Well, uh, uh, perhaps yes, although again, you don't necessarily need to in all cases because, because we have a rule that when it, when it comes to things which are in other words, right. some, so one, one witness can be, can be reliable in certain cases. All this is only concerning trustworthiness when you don't know the person personally, only that he's held to be kosher. But if you know the person truly and you know his nature that he would not lie, and you have much experience in dealing with him, and you see that he does not lie, then this is not a question of trustworthiness as such. Rather, it's considered like actual seeing, for it comes from personal knowledge and familiarity, and not just from, some, from, from not just from because you hold someone to be kosher. That's a terrible translation. <laughs> and not just because you hold someone to be kosher. Um, in other words, what he, what, 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 what he said, and it's important to note, by the way, that at the end of this responsa, he says, I am only giving this ruling for this particular difficult situation in the Soviet Union. He wasn't saying that this is a blanket rule. But, he's, but, he, but he, he has an, an incredible chidush, an incredible, um, uh, how would you say, translate chidush? Incredible new, a fresh insight, a fresh insight, um, where he says the following. He says, the law that only someone who keeps kosher is trustworthy for kosher, is a rule of thumb for a category called kosher trustworthiness. But there's another category, and that is personal trustworthiness. A parent knows that his child doesn't lie to him. And if, my, and if, the, and if your daughter who doesn't keep kosher tells you, Dad, I made it in your toaster oven, and I bought the kosher products, and this is kosher, then you can trust, trust her because she's your daughter. And because your daughter doesn't lie to you. Now that's a huge, it's a huge insight. Now, it's not a halachic principle. In other words, hashkacha pratit in our organization, we still are building trust. But it does create, I think, a, a shift of focus and a shift of conversation to be aware that, when you, that after you've built trust with somebody over time, it's as, the, way he, the way he puts it is it's, it's as if you saw them prepare the food. You know so much that they are with you 
that it's as if you watched them do it, even if you didn't watch them do it. So, so really, I feel like that's, that's the ultimate vision. The ultimate vision, you know, really, the Jewish people are one family. Right? He's talking here about the relationship between parents and children. The Jewish people are one family. Really, all humanity is one family, right? So if we're talking about Jerusalem as a city which is meant to, be a, a, meant to herald in a messianic vision, um, that to me is the vision that I'm connected to. Um, I don't think it's only about the Jewish people. I don't think it's coincidental that, that, that we have one-third of the city as Palestinian. At a time when, when fundamentalist Islam is a, is a, is a worldwide challenge, um, and um, I don't think that it's coincidental that Jerusalem is holy to the three monotheistic religions. Um, and I don't think that it's coincidental that Jerusalem is a, is a, um, is a very intense uh, uh, laboratory of, of, of orthodox fundamentalism within the Jewish community, but also a place where there's a tremendous and exciting renaissance uh, and flourishing of, 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 um, of, of open-hearted, open-minded, pluralistic um, Jewish identity uh, on the grassroots level, on the streets. Um, and I think that's something that, that it's, it's interesting. Um, paradoxically, the fact that there's such harsh fundamentalism in Jerusalem, together with the, these interesting things that are happening, paradoxically makes me most hopeful that actually something might happen in that city which would be akin to what the prophets describe, that for Kimitzion Tetzet Torah, that a light will come out of Jerusalem that will be an inspiration for the world to discover that what seems to be, you know, what seems to be hopeless in terms of trust can actually become a foundation of, 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 of building trust. So thank you for your, for your attention. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.